open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through chapter 2 and verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us for our hypocrisy, our deceit, our envy, our slander, our hatred of you and of of others, of your people. And by your word, cause us to grow into that which we were born again for. Love towards you supremely, yes, but as the sure test and evidence of that, a love for one another. And Father, for those that have never tasted of your goodness, that are incapable of this love, whose heart is only full of malice and hatred towards you and others, Cause them to be born again today by your good news, your word. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Paul opened, Paul, Peter opens this letter with what is in the original language a gargantuan, elephantine, mammoth sentence running from verses 3 through 12, a single sentence wherein he revels, he glories in the good news, the the news of what God has done, before he turns in verse 12 to what we should do. Therefore, and he gives three commands, three commands that are all related and intertwined, and three commands that are easy to miss because they're buried so deep in gospel truth, they're further qualified with the gospel. And they're easy to miss because of all the modifying phrases that are attached to them. For instance, you come to verse 12 and and you might think prepare your minds or be sober-minded are the first command, but it's preparing your minds, being sober-minded. Those are ways that you are to obey the first command, which you get in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Set your hope fully on this grace, preparing your mind. Set your hope fully on this grace, being sober-minded. So, Those first two phrases are are modifiers telling you how to set your hope on the grace. I recall that not simply to review, 
but because the two commands that we're going to take up this morning are also deeply intertwined and can be easily missed because of the modifying phrases, the participle phrases that are attached to them. And as we take up these two commands, I want you to be asking yourself three, command, uh, three questions as we do. What is the contrast between these two commands that we're going to look at? Two, what is the common root that feeds obedience to them both? And three, what is the common means of grace that's behind them both? What's the contrast between the two commands? What's the common root of obedience uh, 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 that feeds the common root, excuse me, that feeds obedience to both of these commands? And what is the common means of grace behind both of these commands? The first command is to love one another. That's no simple command. Love is given lip service world around. Nearly anyone can sing, and by that I mean it's just a very popular tune that anyone can pick up and it'll resonate with their soul. Nearly anyone can sing what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Most will nod the noggin to all you need is love. Those are hits, they're classics, they're widely uh, uh, appreciated. But that so many can enjoy such a tune and think it resonates with them and yet there be so much malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy that those things flourish speaks much louder than any lip service given to love, love, love. That pure and simple love would bring world peace just choose to love if we would all just love and, and that would solve all of our problems. That is a Pelagian lie. Pelagius was that heretic who opposed Augustine, saying that man is born basically righteous, that man can choose to be righteous. He can will to live righteously in and of himself. He doesn't need some kind of miracle of regeneration and grace. He denied the depravity and sinfulness of man and Adam. Man cannot simply fix the problem by choosing to love. Man, as he is in Adam, hates the one who is love. All this talk of love by the world at large is both a dim reflection of the Creator in whose image we are made and also a mask to hide our hatred of Him. But how many churches have the same vain and empty focus on love? There's the sentimental, sappy kind of approach to this that just encourages us to love one another without giving any basis, any grounds, any reason, any depth to the command. Christ's sacrifice might be spoken of as the supreme act of love, but all that's happening in this is that you're encouraged to duplicate it. Go and do likewise. Love sacrificially. What the church is doing is so often exactly what the world is doing, and it's like building a castle in the air. 
Try to build love on this world of sand, this world that is fading, and you'll find that there's not enough weight to hold something as, uh, with the gravity of what love really is. You cannot build love on hatred. And that's where fallen man rests. That's where he is. All the world's talk of love is sheer imperative, sheer law, nothing more. Love, they say. But the gospel is a declaration. It's a declaration of God's love, a transforming love. It gives a foundation for we haters to stand upon as we've been transformed. Before we are told to love, we must be told that we are love. We need a transforming declaration. We need a love that transforms us. Peter's command to love here is buried in the sentence, and it's buried in the gospel. Peter gives reasons why we are to love. Not reasons that stand out in front. You should love because it's the right thing to do, because it's a good thing. Not reasons... Reasons that simply stand out in front, but reasons that lie behind and that lie underneath, propelling and pushing our love forth. Peter tells us not simply that you should love. He tells us why it is that we can love. From one angle, we might say that this command is buried in the gospel. From another, we might say that Peter lays this gospel foundation so that love has something to rest upon. He begins, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. Having purified your souls, this is dangerous language, language that I'm ashamed I'd be hesitant to use. But we should never be hesitant to use the language of Scripture as Scripture uses it. Having purified your souls, words are dangerous things. And they must be used well. And Peter does so here. These words vividly demonstrate the importance of context. But where of the person who's always doing a word study? And you never hear them really do a sentence study or a paragraph study. Words have a wide semantic range of meaning. And it's the sentence, it's the paragraph, it's the context that tells you more about the word than the word and it's a little word study does itself. Well, you'll find as heretics often like to do word studies so that they can insert the meaning of the word that they want back into the text and ignore all the surrounding connective tissue. If you look at the sentences, the paragraphs that surround this, you'll realize there's no way to put a Pelagian spin on what Peter says here, having purified your souls. Peter has called these saints elect exiles, chosen exiles, verse 1. And he said that they were chosen for obedience, verse 2. And he said that God caused them to be born again, verse 3. He caused them to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said that they're being guarded by salvation, excuse me, being guarded for salvation through faith, and they're being guarded by God. God is doing that. They've been ransomed and delivered from their former former futile ways inherited from their forefathers by the precious blood of Christ, 1, 18 through 19. And it is in Jesus that they are believers, 1, 21. And so with all that, you see, Peter is really quite free to say, having purified yourselves. And you're at ease to hear, having purified yourselves, and not misunderstand it. Left alone, such a statement is heresy. 
the statement's not left alone. All the same, what does it mean? Is it speaking of something that happens after we're saved, having purified yourselves? Something that happens after you've been made new, regenerated? Is it speaking of a kind of sanctification for further sanctification? You realize this, that, that once you are in Christ, any growth in holiness is a growth for holiness. You grow in holiness for holiness. As the narrator in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy informs us, Shasta had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward is usually to be set to do another and harder and better one. Saints learn that lesson. Growth in holiness is for growth in holiness. R.C. Sproul comments on this verse in this way, saying... We usually think that purification of the soul takes place so that we will obey God. Yet here, strikingly, the apostle tells us that purification is not only unto obedience, but also by obedience. The more our souls are involved in obedience, the greater the purification that occurs. And the more our souls are purified, the greater our obedience will be. This is not a vicious cycle, but a glory, a vicious, vicious circle, but a glorious circle by which obedience feeds purification, and symbiotically, purification feeds obedience. Now, I believe that everything Sproul says there is beautifully and perfectly true, and yet perfectly wrong of this text. By obedience to the truth means faith in the gospel. You remember Peter opened up by telling us that these These saints were elect, and they were elect, verse 2, according to God's foreknowledge, they were elect in the sanctification of the Spirit, and they were elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood are paired together. They're aspects of the same thing. You were elect, you were chosen by God for obedience and for sprinkling with His blood. This is the same obedience that Paul refers to repeatedly in Romans as the obedience of faith. Or in one instance, chapter 10 and verse 16, he speaks of obeying the gospel. So the gospel is a declaration, it's good news, but it's good news that calls for a response. And the response that it calls for is faith and repentance. that's That's a single act looked at from two different perspectives. To turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ and trust falling into Christ in trust, as it were. Peter has said that that faith is through Jesus, 121. Faith is a gift given from God, but it's a gift not simply that you receive. Faith is a gift you do. And so do you see what this means? Your faith that you do is God's doing. Your doing is His doing. And yet, you do it. You're the one who does the faith. You're the one who does the believing, but it's God's doing and work in you. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, by believing the gospel, you did that. But Peter has so enmeshed this, buried it in the gospel, that you understand that you do that because God has done something in you. Now, in this believing, there's a cleansing having purified your souls. There's this cleansing. And it's ultimately God who does the cleansing, but He does it by faith. The faith which He has done in you, the faith which you do. So in Acts 15, Peter is speaking about the salvation of the Gentiles. 
And he declares, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. God cleansed their hearts. How did he cleanse them? He cleansed them by faith. Whose faith? Their faith. The faith that they exercised is the means by which God cleansed their hearts. And the way you're meant to understand that is that God did the faith. He created it. This belief that purifies sets you apart. It makes you this this sanctified, purified, consecrated person. And it does that for the purpose of love. Having purified your souls for a sincere brotherly love. It's not a false love. It's not a hypocritical love. It's not a self-serving love. This is a sincere, it's a real love, it's genuine. Now from one perspective, there are many commendable acts of love as we look out in the world at large. But underlying them all, ultimately, is a love of self, a love of idols, a hatred of God. Foundationally, all the love of this world is built on a foundation of sand and idolatry. Here you see the call to love is a call to love within a family. Love one another. This is written to a church. This is written to the people of God. Love one another. It is a brotherly love. Later Peter will repeat this to 17. Love the brotherhood. This love is something that's alien to the world that they know nothing of. This is a love that can run out of the church onto the world, but it cannot run out of the world. This is, this is a kind of love that can run out of the church onto the world, but it cannot run out of the world. It can't run out of them, it can run onto them. And because of this purification... This love that's commanded issues forth from a pure heart. You see, this is the, this is the reason why the world's love fa- falls flat. There's no pure heart. But because of this purification, you have a pure heart. You can love from, from that pure heart. All the world's calls for love are as futile as demanding darkness to be light. But the gospel is a declaration wherein the sovereign God causes there to be light. He turns defiled hearts into purified hearts from which love is truly capable of coming. But just in case the gospel grounds and root of obedience to this command are not clear enough for you, Peter goes on, verse 23, Since, do this because, because you have been born again. He lays the same gospel foundation, but he's coming at it from another angle. The new birth, regeneration. And this new birth is what gives rise to the new heart, the pure heart from which love can issue forth. But Peter's emphasis is not simply on the fact of the new birth. Love one another because you've been born again. It's on the means 
of the new birth. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. This is a reproductive metaphor. You've been born again, not of a perishable seed, from your father, your, your earthly father and your father Adam, and as they've handed down to you your, these futile former ways that you walk in, that you've inherited, this guilt that you've inherited. You've been born again. That's how you were born. You were born of imperishable sin, but you were born again, not of imperishable Not of perishable, excuse me. You are born again of imperishable seed. What is the imperishable seed? It's the living and abiding Word of God. James writes in chapter 118 of his letter, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Whenever God causes someone to be born again, He causes it through His Word. Just as creation was by God's sovereign Word, so too new creation. He speaks into an absolute and total void and creates what was not. And to demonstrate that the Word is imperishable, living and abiding, Peter quotes Isaiah 40 verses 6 and 8. Listen to those two verses in their original setting, the the fuller setting. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades and the breath of Yahweh blows on it. When the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Now the point of the word abiding forever in that passage is the certainty, the solitude, the, the, the absoluteness, the, the sureness of God's promise to His people. It abides forever. And this word of promise that does not fail is what causes you to be born again to those promises that do not fail. You're born again to a living hope by the living word. 1 in verse 3, God caused us to be born again to a living hope. And now you're told here that you are born again to that living hope by the living word. He goes on and he explains that that living hope is an imperishable inheritance. And you're born again to that imperishable inheritance by the imperishable Word that holds forth those promises. And as it holds them forth, it's the means God uses by His Spirit to create a new heart that has faith in those promises. 
as you read in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's as Christ is put forward in the word that God makes the heart new, creating faith. The faith which is the obedience to the gospel that purifies you, which God uses to purify you, so that you have a pure heart and love issues forth from it. Behind the command to love one another is the good news that God used to cause us to be born again such that we have a new heart that's pure and able to love one another as a distinct family of exiles separated from this world. Now, as you approach the second command in 2, 1 through 3, remember two things. The chapter divisions of the Scriptures are completely artificial. They're alien to it. They're inserted from outside. They're not natural. They're helpful as addresses. Think of them that way, but don't even think of them as addresses like you see on a house. Here's that property. Here's this property as distinct in marking them off. Think of them as addresses like mile markers along the highway interstate that mean most nothing except other than to say, I'm at mile marker 22 on highway 81. They mean little more than that to help you find your way. Sometimes they fall upon what is a natural division in the Scripture, a division that arises from the Scripture itself. Often they fall right in the middle of something that you should understand to all run together. And so you see that the so tells you that you haven't left the theme of the new birth. The sense of 125 and the so of 2-1 connect both of these commands to the new birth. Because you've been born again, so... Now what is the second command? Well, 2-1 relates to 2-2, the same way that we saw that 1-14 relates to 1-15. You read 1-14 in the ESV most likely, and you read, As obedient children do not be conformed. But the New King James gets at what's happening here better whenever it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to, your for to the former lust, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. The command is, be holy. How be holy? Be holy, not conforming. And you have the same thing here. 2.1, so put away. The New American Standard translates 2.1 this way. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Therefore, so putting away. Read it that way. So putting away. What's the command? Verse 2. Long for the pure spiritual milk. How are you to long for the pure spiritual milk? Putting away. What does it mean, though, to long for the pure spiritual milk? This is indeed a hard translation. Spiritual, the adjective, only appears twice in the New Testament. The other instance is in Romans 12.1, where it's translated spiritual worship is the phrase that you might be familiar with. Other translations have reasonable service. The reasonable would have been the better go at the, at the word in that instance. Here, it's tough. Although the adjective form of this word is rare, the noun form is not rare at all to the New Testament. You've just read it. 
verse 23, it is translated word. Logos is the Greek word. The word of God. I think what Peter's wanting to do is make clear that the milk that you are to long for and crave is the word of God. That's why he uses that adjective form of it there. And so I prefer the translations offered by the New American Standard, the Christian Standard, the King James, which say something like, crave the pure milk of the word. Now, whenever you go to 1 Corinthians 3 or Hebrews 5, you'll see milk used in a negative way, as that which immature Christians, that's what they long for, that's what they want to eat, that's what they deal with. There's no negative association at all here. In Peter, the point of the metaphor is this. How are, how are you to long for the word? The way that a newborn does milk. The point is the craving of the word in that way. Long for it. The way a newborn, not just a, not just a baby, but a newborn child. Long for it the way that they do milk. Why? Verse 2. So that they might grow up into salvation. Grow up into salvation. Salvation is not just something that's part of your past, part of your election and, and your regeneration and your, your justification and your faith. It's not just something that's something that happened to you in the past. It's something that you're growing up into. It's something that lies out in front of you. All of your experience as a saint, all of your experience from that moment that your regeneration and, and every step of sanctification and growth and holiness that you take up until the point of glorification and every instance of your existence in heaven is all part of your salvation and it's owing to Christ. And so Peter told them in 1.3 that, that they were born again and part of what they were born again to is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's lying out there ahead of you. And yet he says in one nine that that he speaks of obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, that, that by this growth in holiness that they have in this life, they obtain more and more what lies out in front of them in the future, that inheritance, that hope that they have in Christ. Now with this, do you see the common means of grace that stand behind both of these commands? The Word of God caused you to be born again, and it's the Word of God that is behind all your growth in Christ. John 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify meaning simply save them. Have this ongoing work of saving them from the futile former ways inherited from their forefathers. Have this ongoing salvation that they realize more and more, obtain more and more by your word, your truth. The word of God is pure and it purifies. Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. 
more to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Desire them, crave them, long for them the way a newborn does milk, and grow thereby into the salvation that is yours in Christ." Other books, other sermons, other teachers, other resources like the catechism can be helpful. But underneath any use of them must be this basic craving and longing. A craving, the pure milk of the word. Beware of enjoying a sermon, even a good expository sermon more than you do the Word itself. Do you enjoy the Word because of the sermon? Or do you enjoy the sermon because of the Word? Crave and long for the pure milk of the Word. Man does not live by bread alone. Crave it as though your life depends upon it because it does. Come to church craving the Word. Read and study your Bible craving your Word. And there must be a tasting, a prior tasting, for there to be this craving. Long for this, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Your taste buds must have been awakened. And and what that means is a new birth where you have new taste and longings, a new birth where your eyes were opened, where your mouth was awakened, as it were, to taste the goodness of Christ. In the new birth, through the Word, there's a tasting of Christ. A tasting of Christ in the Word that held Him forth, such that it creates a longing and a craving for more of the Christ you've tasted. No new birth, no craving like newborns. And if there is this new birth, you crave and long for more of the Christ you've tasted in the gospel. Now what does this growth look like? There are a plethora of ways that we can unfold what growth in Christ looks like. But what does Peter focus on? Long for the pure spiritual milk. Now we go back to the beginning. How long for it? Putting away all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Crave the pure milk of the word like newborn infants that by it you may grow. Putting away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. That's what lies behind the world's mask. The world's charade of love. Not so with those whose hearts have been purified. Put that away. You see with this second command that you come to, Peter has not left the theme of loving one another behind. Do you see the contrast now between the two commands? It's a contrast of not two different commands, but of of a single kind of thing being looked at from two perspectives. Love one another because you've been born again by the word. Put away malice, envy, slander. Put those things away. Longing for the word. 
He's looking at growth both positively and negatively in relation to loving one another and the Word being behind both our new birth and our growth in holiness. I think a couple of other passages will make clear what Peter is doing here. So turn with me first to Ephesians 4, verse 17. And then we'll go to Colossians 3 after that. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's not enough time to draw out all the ways these two passages harmonize and link together and say the same things. It's just glorious if you see it. But you have to see this. You have these two basic sides of growth and holiness. Put on and put off. Mortify and vivify. Kill the old man who was crucified with Christ. It's not who you are anymore. And enliven the new man who you truly are now. Now, one more. Look at Colossians 3. We'll read 1 through 17. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, in all three of these instances, do you see how this putting on and putting off were primarily spoken of in reference to how we relate to one another? Put on. Put off. Love is the fulfilling of the law, and love of neighbor is the true test of love of God. 1 John 4, 7-8 commands us, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is not a love that you can conjure up. This is not some cheap Pelagian knockoff. This is a love that comes about, John tells us, because he first loved us. Or as Luther said, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. God creates this love in us through the new birth, by His Word, so that we're born again to love. And then He builds us up, sanctifies us further in this love for one another by the Word which He caused us to be born again by. And so I admonish you, saints, elect exiles, because you have been born again, earnestly love one another, sincerely, from a pure heart, putting away the old man with his malice, his envy, his slander, and putting on the new man who you were created in Christ to be. Let's pray. Father, for the glory of Christ, save souls here today to demonstrate this kind of love that magnifies your Son. And may the world know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Send forth your word now in our hearts to accomplish that end. All glory be to your name. In the name of Christ. Amen.